may be seated. I would invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to find your way to that passage that I just read in Philippians chapter 2. We're working through that letter together verse by verse. We made our way to chapter 1 last week, and this week we begin chapter 2 together. And I'm delighted to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning as one of the pastors here at the park. And it's a delight to be able to welcome you if you're a guest with us and we've never met, or maybe we just met It's a joy to have you here, and if you're part of the family, and you are here, and you're like, I'm here every single week, good to see you this morning, brothers and sisters. So glad to have you here this morning, and I'm expecting great things from God as we open up his word together. Do you believe that God can do great things through his word? You ready to be changed this morning? Ready to be more like Jesus? That's our prayer. If you remember last week, we saw this little uh, diagram that I made so beautifully, and I appreciate so many of your feedback on my drawing on this, that we are no longer, if we are in Christ, citizens of earth, citizens of Iowa or Des Moines and the surrounding areas, but we have a new king, King Jesus And because we are citizens of another kingdom, a greater kingdom where righteousness dwells, we have a different constitution that is the gospel that derives who we are and how we behave and conduct ourselves towards each other and towards the world around us. And that the church of God is meant to be the embassy of the kingdom of God that is heavenly soil on earth as we're reminded as we come together who we are, who we belong to, and who is our king. And then go out and live as citizens of another kingdom in a world that is desperately in need of knowing the true king Jesus. And our kingdom that we live in is an upside down kingdom. Everything that is true of this kingdom here on earth is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven that we who are in Christ are living in. It is counter to the culture. For instance, if we want to live, we first must die. If we want to be rich, we must first declare spiritual bankruptcy. If we're to be happy, it's preceded by mourning. If we're to be satisfied, we first must have hunger. And if we want to save our lives, we first have to lose it. And as we look at this morning, in the kingdom of God, the way to move up is to go down. And here's what I want us to see, what I believe God wants us to see in his word this morning is this. Humility is the road to unity. Let's all say that together. One, two, three. Humility is the road to unity. Paul in verse 2 says, be of the same mind, having the same love, having the same interest. He's describing what unity looks like. It doesn't mean that we're all the same, but we're all headed in the same direction for the same purpose. And I want to give to you this morning what is key to every relationship. The key to every unity, every problem in your marriage, in your life at work, in your life at school, in your life at home, whatever it may be, we all have relationships and we've all experienced disunity. Perhaps even on your way to church this morning, you felt that disunity as you came into this place this morning. 
The problem I want to submit to you is this. Deeply rooted in every single problem is pride. That's always the issue. And the cure is the opposite. Disunity is because of pride. The cure is humility. So Paul is writing now to this church that he loves in Philippi, and they had done some great things. But Paul was now concerned that they were going to lose their joy, that they were going to lose their effectiveness as a church because they had some disunity that was happening among this small congregation. Paul doesn't attack the pride directly on. He does that a little bit later, which we'll see together, by calling out some people by name in his letter. Instead, he sets the groundwork for their disunity by talking about humility. And so this next section is about humility, which would have been very counterculture to those who were living in a Greek culture. Did you know that there is actually no word for humility in the Greek language? That's how little they valued humility. The Romans despised it. They loathed it. It was all about power, strength, and prestige. Hmm, that doesn't sound all too far off from us, does it? In fact, some would say, some suggest that Paul actually invented the word in Greek when he wrote this letter. It's a radical call. I have played in many best ball tournaments for golf, charity tournaments. Those are really the only ones that I enjoy playing in because I get about good five or six shots around. And so they're fun. When others get to carry you and you get to play on a team together. I was playing at an event not too long ago and at the hole they had you could wager five dollars and if you get within a strength length of the pin you would gain 15 bucks. Now just to rest assured if you're thinking does my pastor gamble? All right. It is for charity. All right. So no matter what happens it all goes to the kids. All right. So I wagered my five bucks and had the shot of my life. I knew that it was within the string, but I made the people go in their cart down to the hole to measure it with me so that I could get this picture that you see behind me. And then afterwards, they gave me my $15, and I turned and I said, you keep it. Give it back to the kids. Now, some of you are like, wow, that was incredible. But what you don't know is that that's been a dream of mine since I was 22 years old. The first time I ever played in a charity golf tournament and I saw a guy at the end win this big prize and he said, I'd like to return it. And in my mind, I thought, man, that was cool. I would love to do that someday. Lord, would you give me that opportunity to give something back after a great accomplishment that I'd done? Well, here it was. Here was my opportunity. And isn't that strange about humility? We all love humble people, don't we? But the thing that we love the most is often hardest to do. Even our greatest things that we can do are often laced with pride. No one knew in that moment, I was enjoying it, but how much pride was seeping into my soul of fulfilling this 20-year dream. Did I say 22? 18-year dream. I don't want you to think I'm that old, all right? 
pride. It can creep in so easily on us, can't it? Backdoor pride, outright pride, whatever it is, we hate it when we see it in others, but yet we feel it so much within ourselves, and it's harder to see within ourselves. Some of us are the pride police. We can always point it out in other people, but yet miss it when it's in us. I was in a room of leaders not too long ago, and I walked in, and I had this inner thought within my soul, and I said, how can I show these guys that I'm worthy, but yet still look humble at the same time? Have you felt that before? Walking into a room, sizing yourself up against everyone else, either seeing, wow, I don't measure up, or man, I'm way beyond these people. I know that you don't do that. This is just me talking here, right? You're not guilty ever of that. Perhaps even when you walked in the room this morning, that person greeted you at the door, and that thought went through your mind of how you have your life altogether more than them. Pride is ugly. It seeps in. Spurgeon said this of pride, if a man thinks ill of you, don't be angry, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. You know within your heart that you are wretched. That you are worse off than anyone could ever imagine. And if we could just have a screen on our foreheads that projected every thought that we had that everyone could see, we'd probably rather die. Right? We are in desperate need this morning. We are in desperate need of God's grace and desperate need of humility. Well, Paul motivates this church to humility through their constitution of the gospel. He says, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul in a very poetic way is using the word if. If can also be translated since or because. So it's if he's saying because you have encouragement in Christ, because you have love from God, because you have fellowship with the Spirit, because you have affection and mercy, be unified. Paul is bringing out the family camcorder and he's showing all the old videos of when these people came to know Jesus. Any of you love on your phone that shows you the featured photo of the day? You know, you get those and it's like from four years ago and you're like, oh my goodness, look at that. The kids have grown. I look older. What a great day that was. You recapture that moment. Paul is doing that with the church here. As he motivates them to humility, he's saying, let me take you back and be reminded of all that you have in Christ. Remember that day at the river? Remember the first time we met and Lydia was there with her friends and she heard the true news about Jesus and she gave her, her life to Christ after God opened her heart? Remember that? Remember when you were at Lydia's house later and we were meeting there and you heard the gospel and you didn't understand all of it, but you knew that you needed Jesus? Remember that moment? Oh, that was great, wasn't it? Do you remember that in your life? Has it happened in your life? If it has, you are now not in Adam, in sin anymore, but now in Christ. And he says that now you have love from God. You have grace. When you deserved wrath, instead you were given Mercy. You have fellowship with the Spirit, he says. That fellowship is the word koinonia. It's the same thing that he said in chapter 1 about his relationship to Philippi. He says we are in a gospel partnership together, a deep mutual relationship. He says that's the kind of relationship that you have with the Spirit of God who now lives and dwells in you. 
Let me remind you of who we are and what Christ has done in Park Church. If you are in Christ, that is what's true of you right now. Even when you don't feel like it, even when it doesn't seem like that's the case, if you know Jesus through faith, that is absolutely 100% true of you right now in this moment. And so I want to use that just like the Apostle Paul does to be our motivation towards humility towards unity together. Paul has an ulterior motive here too. He says, I want you to do this so that my joy is full. He had no greater joy than to see his friends unified together. And I want you to also see that not only is this Paul's joy, but it's Jesus's prayer for you. This is what Jesus prayed before he went to the cross in John chapter 17. We have that, right? John chapter 7. There it is. Okay, good. Because I didn't have it. So thank you. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Jesus is praying this for you right here on the east side of Des Moines. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus' prayer for the church, he says, if you want to have joy, if you want to be effective, my prayer for you is that you will be unified. And what does he say, the reason for it? So that when the world sees this unified people that are all so very different, have different interests, but one in the gospel of Jesus, they will look at that and go, I believe. So we want to be unified together as a church because unity brings joy and we want to be unified together as a church so that a world that doesn't know Christ sees the unity of his church and says I want to believe in that that's the kind of people that I want to be a part of so humility is the road to unity if you're preparing for a trip You have your destination in mind. You know where you're headed. Our destination together is unity. The road to get there, if we're going to arrive safely at our destination, is humility. While you're driving on a trip, there's a dash in front of you, right? And little lights that will blink and light up to tell you about things that are happening along the trip. Now, most of those you don't enjoy seeing, right? There's a low tire pressure light. There's the oil light that you're like, I knew I should have gotten an oil change before I left. There's the low uh, window washer fluid light, which is okay unless you're in a snowstorm. Then it's terrible that you don't have any, right? And then there's that really pesky one that nobody wants to see, the check engine light. When that comes on, you're like, oh, no. Because there's something happening internally inside of your engine that you don't see. And it's warning you, saying something is off here. You need to pay attention to this. You need to find out what it is because it's going to keep you from getting to your destination. Now, I'll just acknowledge that some of you, though, this light means nothing to you. And you drive for months with it on, right? But it is a light that is warning you. Something is off and you should pay attention to it. So Paul is going to give us in this text the check engine lights to say, This is going to keep you from getting to your destination. I don't want you on the side of the road with smoke coming out of the hood. 
I want you to get there safely, and I want you to get there in one piece together. So here's the first thing I want us to see. If humility is the road to unity, I first need to check my motives. Check my motives. This is really practical in the life of the church. If we're going to pursue unity together, this is on you and I, first of all, to check our or my motives. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, it can be translated vain glory. It's my golf shot is what it is. It's a recognition with the wrong motives for doing good. Listen, here's what's so great about God is he doesn't just care that you do good. He cares how you're doing it when you're doing good. He cares about your motives, the way that you are doing it, and the reason that you are doing it. Because God cares about your heart. He isn't just looking for people who have a bunch of good behavior that do a lot of nice things every once in a while. He's looking for people who are transformed in their heart that do things with the right motivation. That's why he was always calling out the Pharisees. He says, you guys are doing a lot of good stuff. The Pharisees were a sect of people that kept all the rules in the New Testament and they were opponents of Jesus. Here's what he says to them. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside it's filthy. Outside you look really nice. But you've neglected what's most important on the inside. All the coffee grounds are still in there. It's disgusting. You want everyone to think that you're clean, but inside you are nasty. Clean up the inside of the cup before doing what's right. So God wants us to check our motives. We all long for glory. It's a part of us. We were made for glory. But to glory in the right place is to say, I, was, I want to glory in Christ. Because when you pursue vainglory, everything you thought, if I could just get this one more thing, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content, then I'll have joy. How's that working for you? It doesn't happen. It does the opposite, doesn't it? Oh, maybe for a moment, for a little season, you feel good. But then you're like, I need something else. I need more. God cares about your motives not just your actions he wants us to have a pure heart because he doesn't want us to use each other in the church to accomplish things he wants us to love each other from a pure heart the second engine light that comes on is this check my ego this is a good one isn't it it's like oh man okay this is not for you to nudge the person next to you this is your ego okay ready Paul says, in humility, count others as more important than yourselves. He gives you the definition of humility. What's humility? To count others as more important than you. Does it say that others are more important than you? No. Could you be more important than others perhaps in the world that we live in? Yeah. But Paul says humility is counting everyone as more important than yourself. That's why C.S. Lewis, when he defines humility... It's not thinking of yourself, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Isn't that ego? Always thinking about yourself. But he says, it's not about you have a bad view about yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's having an accurate view of yourself. That you're not as big a deal as you think you are. You're not. I'm not. 
My life verse that I've adopted this year is Romans 12, verse 3. Everyone asks me, what's your life verse? And I never had one. Here it is. You ready? Romans 12, 3. I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than we ought to think. Man, isn't that the cure-all verse for every problem in life? Is that you think of yourself way too highly than you ought to think. If we're honest, we have a pretty high view of ourselves, even if we aren't excited about who we are. We're exercising still that we think about ourselves all the time. And we have a very high view of ourselves. And Paul is saying, put yourself in the right place. Loved by God, the beloved of God, a member of the family, but count others more, cons- more uh, better than you. A famous orchestra conductor, I love this. He was asked this question, what's the hardest instrument to play in the orchestra? He responded, second violin. He says, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second violin with enthusiasm, that is the problem. But if you have no second violin, you have no harmony. What a beautiful place as citizens of heaven, of us who check, who check our ego and say, I'm the CEO of my company, but I am willing to pick up trash. I'm willing to serve the least of these in our community, within our church. We all come together under the cross, under an equal playing field, and we say, God is great. I am not. There's nothing beneath me, and I want to see everyone is above me. So that I can serve properly. We want to have humility as a church. We first must check our motives. We must check our ego. And then he says, look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Last, check my priorities. Anybody as a kid or maybe still as an adult, when someone says, hey, we're going to the store. What's a kid say when he's riding with mom and dad? Shotgun, right? I want the best seat if I'm going to go on this. I'm looking out for me. I'm priority number one. It's why I always make my kids sit on the middle seat of an airplane, right? I don't want to do that. It's why when I'm helping someone move, I always time it perfectly that I'm not the one carrying the deep freeze, right? You're like, wow, that worked out well. It always works out well. I do it on purpose because I'm my number one priority. It's me. That's why when accidents happen in a vehicle, it's normally on the passenger side because our natural instinct is to protect ourselves. I think of some old lyrics that uh, some of you will appreciate. This is from uh, the great one, if I can find them. Oh no, did I lose them? They're on the steps. Someone saw them fall out. Where? Point hot, cold, freezing that way. Oh, look at this. See, this is why we're a plurality of pastors. I appreciate that. Frank Sinatra, I think, sums this up. And I don't think it's too far off, even though it was written several years ago. This is a song that many are familiar with. I did it my way. Now the end is near, so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a full life that's full. I traveled each and every highway and more And much, much more than this, I did it my way. Here's the last line. This is the one that stuck out to me. For what is man, what has he got? 
if not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of the one who kneels. The records show I took the blows and I did it my way. Right? You remember that song? Yeah. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of the one who kneels. Oof. Isn't that an accurate depiction of us and the world that we live in? To kneel is weakness. To say what you want and what feels good in the moment, that's power. You let someone have it. It doesn't bring unity. It hurts. We live in a counterculture, an upside-down kingdom. We worship the one who knelt, who condescended to us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for next week. But Paul is going to unpack that further and further, this countercultural idea, using Jesus as the reason for our humility. So how do we stay on the road to humility and how do we arrive at unity? Verse 5 tells us, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. The more we grow in our relationship with Jesus, the more he gets into our hearts, the more we become like him. If you don't spend time with Jesus, don't expect a lot of humility in your life. Because listen, you become what you behold. Who you spend your time with is who you become like. It happens. So here's the beauty of all of this. If you're going to adopt the same attitude of Jesus, you've got to know Jesus' attitude by spending time with him. By being around people that spend a lot of time with Jesus so that it rubs off on you. By spending time in the word of God, listening to it while you drive, reading it in the mornings, living it out. That is the way that you become a humble person. It takes effort, yes, but it's not only effort. It's not a do good, try harder that will last for a moment. It is a gospel-driven, heart-changing by spending time with Jesus as he changes your affections, he changes your desires because you, as you spend time with him, you become more and more like him. So if we want to be a church that lacks pride and has a ton of humility and results in being unified, we'll be a church that sits at Jesus' feet, that spends time with him. That loves the things that he loves because you become what you behold. So let's complete Paul's joy. Let's be the answer to Jesus' prayer in an affirmative yes. That is what we will strive for. Looking to Jesus, as Michaela read this morning, for the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now these verses can be verses that are paralyzing if we think that we can do them perfectly. And so these verses are a guide, a map for us to pursue humility and ultimately gain unity. But they are verses also that drive us to a need for a savior. 
Because I don't always count myself better. I don't always count others better than me. I'm not always humble. I'm often prideful. And so that is why we have this visual representation that Jesus left to the church to tell us you can't do it. Someone else has to do it for you. So we remember at the table this morning that we want to strive to be like Jesus, but we could never be fully unified or fully humble because we're not Jesus and we still are in desperate need of a Savior.